you ever said to someone, let me show you how this is done? Of course you have. We all have. At times, the best explanation is a demonstration. You know, it's better to show a person how it's done than it is to tell them. It's been said some lessons are better caught than taught. Or as the Scottish preacher put it, better felt than telt. And this is certainly true of faith. Warren Wiersbe once wrote, The best way for faith to grow is to walk with the faithful. And the author of Hebrews would agree. He's been encouraging these Hebrew believers to trust in Jesus, to leave behind the old ways of Jewish religion, and to follow a person, the living Lord Jesus. You know, several years ago, my youngest son, Mac, and I, we visited the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. The museum spotlights the 300 members of the Hall of Fame that made memorable contributions to the 150-year history of baseball. The game's all-time greats are enshrined in the Hall of Fame. And what a fun day we had touring the place. Well, tonight we're going to have some fun touring the Bible's Hall of Faith. For Hebrews 11 shines a spotlight on the Old Testament's great examples of faith and trust. Tonight we're going to walk with the men and women of faith and we're going to pray that their example rubs off on us. The writer begins by defining faith, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now realize the Christian life is full of blessing. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But notice the nature of our blessings according to Ephesians. They're spiritual and they're heavenly. And for physical, tactile, earthbound people like you and me, that means that our blessings are slippery. You see, here's our dilemma. The blessings that are ours in Christ are eternal and spiritual, whereas we live in a physical body and we're confined to a temporal world. We're used to interacting with surroundings through our five senses. And yet spiritual blessings can't be tasted or touched or smelled or seen or heard. But God has an answer for our problem. It's called faith. For faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith brings substance. It brings texture to spiritual, ethereal realities. Faith is the handle on our hopes. By faith we grab hold of God's power and God's peace and God's love. And we truly, truly possess them. Have you ever had trouble getting the cap off of a bottle of ketchup? You ever had that problem? What do you do? You reach for a textured rag, something to get a good grip. You wrap it around the slick top. And that rag, rag it provides you some grip. It gives you the torque you need to twist the cap off of the top of the bottle. And you see, this is what faith does. Faith produces spiritual torque. It gives us the grip that we need to open up the blessings of God into our lives. Faith is the sixth sense that sees spiritual and eternal realities. Oswald Sanders puts it, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible is seen. 
Faith alerts us to the spiritual traffic around us. It opens our eyes to God's work in our lives. Faith is the bobber that you put on your fishing line that just sort of sits there on top of the water. With your eyes, you can't tell what's going on underneath the surface of the water. But when you see that bobber plunge under the water, you know you've hooked a fish. Faith is like that fishing bobber. It alerts us to what's on the end of the line that we can't see. Notice verse 2 tells us, For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Now, now understand the impact of this chapter on the Jewish believers to whom it was sent. When they embraced Jesus as their Messiah, when they began to walk by simple faith, they were accused by family and by friends and even by their rabbis of abandoning their Jewish roots. But here they're assured that a life of faith is not a departure from their Hebrew heritage. To the contrary, you know, by this, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. The heroes of Hebrew history all gained approval from God by faith. You know, the Jews thought that they had to grind out a goodness through their rituals and through their rules. That by their good works they could please God. They thought it was up to them to earn their way to God. It reminds me of a Brazilian man, Marcio de Silva. Marcio fell in love with a beautiful young lady, 19-year-old Katia. To prove his love, Marcio walked on his knees nine miles to see this young lady on his knees. He cut out pieces of tire rubber and he tied them to his knees. He shuffled down the freeway for 14 hours cheered on by the motorists and by the bystanders until he finally reached her house. But the beautiful Katia, she wasn't impressed. She heard he was coming and she left the house to avoid him. He should have checked on that ahead of time. You see, the Jews, they were like Marcio over their history. They made great efforts, great sacrifices. They performed extreme examples of devotion in an attempt to win God's favor. The only problem is that God was like Katia. He wasn't impressed. You see, according to verse 2, the elders of Israel, they obtained a good testimony, not by their works, but by their faith in Christ. Verse 3 By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were were not made of things which are visible. You know, the astronomers now theorize that 98% of the matter in the universe is invisible. The worlds are made up of far more than what meets the eye. The universe we live in is unimaginably large, but it is also infinitesimally small. At first, we discovered the molecule, and then the atom, and then the electron and the proton that make up the atom. And today, scientists talk about even smaller objects like quarks and gluons and photons and neutrinos. And yet, the writer of Hebrews, he was ahead of science. He says here, the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And whether great or small, everything that God created began with His Word. You see, you can't have faith in God without faith in God's Word. Once the famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he wrote a letter to his supporters. In it, he boasted of his abundance. He wrote them, 
We have 25 cents in all the promises of God. That's faith in God's Word. That's how faith works. All God's works begin with faith in His Word. As we're told here, the words, worlds were framed by the Word of God. It's been said, faith believes it to be true simply because God said so. The Greek word translated here, worlds, all the worlds were framed by the Word of God. This word worlds, it can mean ages or periods. I think both the physical universe and the history of mankind has been formed by God's Word. God has an unfolding plan for the ages. We need to remember that history is not random. History is His story. The cornerstone of faith is the realization that God is in control of world events and our events, and it's all going to climax in the kingdom of His Son. Everyone in the hall of faith looks for this kingdom, as we'll see soon. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Now here's another example, a basic principle of true faith. Faith always responds to God on God's own terms. You see, Adam had two sons, and they both offered a sacrifice to God. Abel, he went to his flocks, and he slaughtered a lamb. Cain went out to his fields, and he brought God a fruit basket. But Abel offered the more excellent sacrifice. Why? Because it was the sacrifice that God desired. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with fig leaves, which kind of turned out to be a cruel joke. If you've ever handled a fig leaf, you realize how itchy and scratchy they are. You don't want to cover your... Fig leaf underwear would have been very painful. God is much more merciful. Instead of fig leaves, God clothed the fallen family in soft lamb skins. But you see, since animals, they don't usually give up their pelts voluntarily. <laughs> that necessitated the killing of a lamb. God was teaching Adam and Eve that the wages of sin is death. You know, it's been hypothesized that when Cain's sacrifice was rejected, he was 129 years old. He wasn't a new kid on the block. He'd been offering lambs to God for over 100 years. In other words, he knew better when he brought this other sacrifice to God. Pride got the best of Cain. He tried to substitute the work of his hands, that fruit from his fields, for the blood of an innocent lamb. And God rejected his sacrifice. Why? Because man can never save himself. Our forgiveness requires the blood of another. When Cain laid his fruit basket down on the altar, he was sort of humming Frank Sinatra's anthem. I did it my way. That was the problem. But you see, you really don't love someone if you just love them your way. That's not real love. Real love cares for a person in the way they want and need to be loved. Thus, Cain said he loved God. But love doesn't stop at what's convenient for itself. Love truly reaches out and loves that person in the way they want to be loved. That's what Cain failed to do in his relationship with God. 
Notice verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch experienced what we all hope to one day. He was raptured. One evening after dinner, old Enoch, he told Mrs. Enoch that he was taking the dog for a walk and he never came back. Enoch made a habit of walking with God, apparently. He lived in the awareness of God's presence. He sought God's company. And God so enjoyed Enoch, he finally just brought him right on into his eternal presence. God beamed him up. In Genesis 5, at the time of the flood, God's water judgment of the earth There were three groups of people, the wicked who drowned, Noah and his family who survived, and then there was Enoch who went up before the judgment came down. You know, it's also interesting that just prior to the end times, to God's final judgment on the earth, his judgment by fire, there'll also be three groups of people. The Jews who survive this period of great tribulation. The wicked who die because of the judgments. But then there's a third group. It's the church who will get caught up in heaven before the judgment comes down. I believe that Enoch is a type of the church. He's a type of the church that will be raptured one day. Jude 14 and 15 tells us that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. That's a pretty long time ago. That Enoch was a prophet. And what was his message? It was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now that's real faith. The seventh seventh generation from Adam already had his eyes on the coming of Christ. Notice verse 6 is the theme of Hebrews 11. It's the main point. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Notice he doesn't say without faith, it's difficult to please God, or it's barely doable. No. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And here's what constitutes true faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Sincere faith believes God exists and expects God to bless. Real faith believes God exists and expects God to bless. Faith is a Godward expectation. Oh, I remember when Natalie was little, she'd look up at me with those big blue eyes and she'd say, Daddy, I want some ice cream. And it didn't really matter where we were or what we were doing. I would just melt. Okay, princess, I'll get you some ice cream. Kathy would look over and she'd just roll her eyes. Man, when it came to my little girl, her daddy was a soft touch. And I think this is how God is with His kids. We're told here that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But you have to seek. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. You remember prior to Noah, the earth was watered by heavy dew. It had never really rained. At the time, the earth had a different ecosystem. But I'll bet there was the same cynicism. Imagine the cat calls and ridicule. Noah was fodder for the editorialist cartoons, building that ark out there in the wilderness. Noah reminds us faith is never popular. 
And yet Noah was unmoved by the mockery because, we're told, he was moved with godly fear. In other words, Noah cared more about God's approval than he did his reputation among men. Despite the public scorn that his project brought, we're told he prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah built this boat, and he preached impending judgment. He did both by faith. You see, faith hears what other people don't. It's privy to what others lack. Faith is often misunderstood and laughed at. But remember, it was Noah who got the last laugh. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham, he comes home one night and he announces to his wife, Sarah, Honey, pack up. We're moving. The Calvary Chapel's coming tomorrow morning with the U-Haul trailer. But Abraham, where are we going? Sarah, when God tells me, you'll be the first to know. Boy, what a follow-up discussion that cozy couple must have had. Noah believed without seeing, whereas Abraham believed without knowing. And I think the latter may be even more difficult. You see, I don't mind not seeing as long as God tells me what's going on. It's when God conceals the details. When I'm expected to trust Him, even when I can't trace Him. It's when I don't have all the facts. That's when my faith gets tested. You see, too many of us are addicted to details, aren't we? We want to know why. Well, faith turns the why into a oh. It turns the why into a who. For when you really know who, you don't need to know why. Verse 9, By faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I like how author Kent Hughes helps us think of Abraham's faith in modern times. He writes this, Imagine God promising you and your descendants the land of Guatemala, and then in obedience traveling there and living for the rest of your life in your camper, along with your son's families in their campers, moving from place to place. You remain an alien for the remainder of your sojourn without full citizenship rights, a perpetual outsider. You see, Abraham was never given the land. He was, he was given a land that he never fully possessed. And that was okay with him, for he understood why. For Abraham was actually looking for a heavenly home. He realized that in terms of life on earth, we're merely passing through. Hey, we're all merely passing through. The other night, one of the Braves announcers, he mentioned that one of the injured Braves was day-to-day. His sidekick popped in and said, we're all just day-to-day. Hey, this earth, the dream home you've envisioned, 
the summer cabin you're going to build one day, the exotic vacation you're going to take. It's not your final destination. We're all foolish to make too much of earthly, temporal stuff. What matters here and now is to secure our citizenship in that eternal city. Heaven is our ultimate destination, and the wise man makes preparations. Well, we're told by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Remember when the child was born, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was an unbelievable 90 when she birthed the promised child. Abe and Sarah were the first and only couple in history to qualify for a senior citizen discount on the labor and delivery bill. It was nature-defying, a nature-defying miracle. Sarah conceived because she believed. She conceived by faith. Perhaps God wants to work a miracle of new life in your existence, in your work, or in your home, or in your family, or in your marriage. You're weak and weary. You need strength. Well, how do you receive it? You receive it by faith. Have you judged Him faithful who promised? Are you expecting God to meet your need? This is real faith. Notice verse 12. Therefore, from one man, in Him as good as dead... Now, fellas, how would you like for somebody to say you were as good as dead? Especially when it came to your reproductive activities. What a major assault to the male ego. Abraham, as good as dead. He can forget Viagra. He's beyond hope. He's a step away from dead, the old boy is. And yet God gave him strength. And from Abraham, we're told, we're born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is what faith enables a man to do, to see what's afar off, to embrace it, and then to use it for the challenge that's up close. He says, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. You know, this world is full of distractions, which is why the person of faith focuses on what's above and what's ahead. He or she doesn't get bogged down in what's behind and what's around. We're told, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Heaven is the mother country of faith. Heaven is what faith ultimately looks to and looks for. He says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. People of faith see life and adopt values and make decisions from an eternal perspective. They realize that heaven is their home. And it's from heaven that they live their lives here on earth. This is how God wants you and me to live. Perhaps you heard the story of the pioneer missionary. His name was Henry Morrison. He was returning to the States from 40 years on the mission field. 40 years in Africa. On board that same boat was the president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt. He was coming back from a safari. When the boat docked in New York Harbor, 
A huge reception came out to greet President Roosevelt. Morrison exited the boat alone, by himself, totally dejected that no one was there to greet him. After all, he'd just spent 40 years serving the Lord on a mission field. And now he's coming home. No one seemed to care less. But as he was getting off the boat, the Lord reminded him, Henry, you're not home yet. We all should remind ourselves of that same truth. This world is not our home. We're not home yet. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Notice, God always puts faith to the test. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Then after 25 years, God performed an incredible miracle. He opened Sarah's barren womb and gave them a son. Abraham's faith had already been tested by time, by means. But now the ultimate test of faith was his obedience. For after providing them a son, God told Abraham to offer up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Abraham passed his test. But this test was more complicated than what meets the eye. You know, the writer quotes Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. You see, another promise had come with the promised son. Abraham would sire a great nation that would give birth to the Messiah, to the Savior of mankind. So if he sacrifices Isaac, where is he going to get grandsons and great-grandsons and eventually this Messiah that's to come into the world? What God is commanding seemed to only muddy the water. It was a crisis of logic as well as a crisis of love. The future of the nation, even the future of God's promises, His promised salvation was riding on the outcome of Abraham's faith. The words in verse 17 are so simple. When he was tested, offered up Isaac. But they don't do justice to the completeness of Abraham's unquestioning faith. Genesis 22 verse 3 tells us that the day after the command was given, Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. The very next day, early in the morning, there was no stalling apparently. There was no questioning. Nor He didn't... Seek to obey a week after the commandment was given. It was the very next day he saddled his donkey. There was no arguing with God. There was no denying what he had heard. There was no hesitation on his part. Abraham truly, he just obeyed. Boy, I hope my faith never gets tested to this extreme. What would you do if God told you to offer up your only son as a sacrifice? We know what Abraham did. He took Isaac to the appointed place. He strapped his son to the altar. He raised a knife above his throat. How could he sacrifice the embodiment of all of his hopes and dreams? We're told how in verse 19. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. The Greek word translated concluding is actually a mathematical term. It's the same word we get for the word logarithm. It means to calculate. Abraham was 
mathematical in his deliberations. You know, often Christians are accused of having blind faith or faith without reason, but not so. Our faith is reasonable. It's logical. It just includes God into the calculations. Abraham reasoned the situation out. God had given him a son. Isaac was essential to the fulfillment of God's promise. Yet Abraham was certain that God had told him to sacrifice his son. What's the conclusion? Well, God must be planning to raise Isaac from the dead. There had never been a resurrection prior to this. Yet Abraham figured out what God would do by figuring God into his equation. This is what faith always does. It figures God into the equation. Have you calculated God into your situation? Again, verse 19 from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham never brought down the knife, remember? But in his heart, he had sacrificed his son to God. And in doing so, Abraham was brought into the deepest communion possible with his father God. For Abraham shared the heart of the father who would one day show, 2,000 years later, when God offered up his only son, Jesus, he did so on the exact same spot that Abraham offered Isaac, just outside of Jerusalem. Our Father God in heaven offered His Son in the same fashion that Abraham had offered His 2,000 years earlier. It was a figurative blessing, a figurative meaning that Abraham gave us. Notice verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And this was truly amazing faith. You remember Jacob stole his brother's birthright by dressing up like Esau and fooling Isaac, his nearly blind dad. What a dastardly deed it was. It was a first-rate con. Yet Isaac saw, somehow he saw, in Jacob's deception, God's providence at work. And through faith, he stood by the hijacked blessing. When it came time to bless us, he blessed Jacob over Esau. Told by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. What made this a faithful act? Well, it was by faith that Jacob broke with ancient custom. Apparently, he sensed God's will for Joseph's boys and their descendants. So when the day came for him to bestow his fatherly blessing, he crossed hands. And he gave the blessing to the younger rather than to the older. He crossed hands and he blessed the younger Ephraim over his older brother, firstborn brother Manasseh. God's will always trumps tradition. And Joseph also demonstrated faith. We're told by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. You remember Joseph arrived in Egypt at 19 years old. He lived there until he was 110. And yet he knew God's word. And that Israel's future was not in Egypt, but it was in the promised land. And so as an act of faith, he made his family promise to take his bones back for burial. And Joseph's faith was vindicated for 400 years later when Moses, he led the Hebrews out of Egypt. Guess what they took with him? They took Joseph's mummy. His mummy, not his daddy. They took his mummy. They took his bones back to the promised land. 
Notice the faith of all four patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It wasn't a blind faith. It saw farther and it saw deeper. It saw God's hand at work behind the scenes. It saw His purposes throughout all the future. Realize the man of faith, he doesn't see less than others see. He actually sees more than other people. Verse 23 By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, here's a parent's faith in action. You know, the Jewish historian Josephus, he gives us a reason for Pharaoh's command to destroy the male infants of of the Hebrews. He writes, One of Egypt's sacred scribes, who was very discerning in foretelling future events, truly, told the king that about this time there would be a child born to the Israelites, who if he were reared would bring the Egyptian dominion low and would raise the Israelites. Ironically, this king, the king who plotted to kill Moses as an infant, will end up financing his childhood and his education. Boy, the faith of Moses' parents led to his survival. Remember, they placed him in a basket. And they floated him down the Nile. He was found. And he was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter herself. Raised in the Pharaoh's home. He ate the finest foods from his table. Was educated in his schools. All happened by faith. The faith of parents who cared about their son. We're told by faith Moses, when he became of age... Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You see, it's hard to imagine the advantages afforded Moses as a member of the Egyptian dynasty. His his wealth was inexhaustible. And yet with the riches of the world at his fingertips, Moses chose, we're told, rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses made a choice. To be afflicted with God's people rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses was able to see through the shallowness of Egyptian culture. The vanity of their gods. The capriciousness of their morality. In contrast to their emptiness, he saw in the Hebrews a joy in the midst of their distress. A purpose, a meaning. Even in the face of hardship. Moses was drawn to that kind of meaning in life and that kind of character. Moses found fulfillment in what was true and eternal, even though it cost him some momentary discomfort. You see, God's life, even in suffering, beats the hollowness and the destructiveness of the passing pleasures of sin. And notice that term, the pleasures of sin. I hope you know, I'm sure you do, sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be a temptation. There's no denying it. Sin is pleasurable. But the pleasure of sin is fleeting. It's passing. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And how quickly the pleasures of sin turn to pain, painful consequences. You know, it reminds me of how Eskimos kill wolves. They dip a knife in blood, and then they freeze it. And for a wolf, this makes for a popsicle of pleasure. 
the wolf comes and it just sort of licks away the blood until his tongue gets down to the blade of the knife. By this time, he's so used to the taste of blood that he doesn't realize the blood he's tasting now is his own. And thus he dies. And you see, this is sin's trap. At first, it tastes good. It is so much fun. But at some point, and it's not always detectable to you, the pleasure ends and the destruction begins. Sin can look inviting until you compare it to something else. And thus, we're told of Moses in verse 26, that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In the long run, Moses figured he was better off suffering with God's people than he was savoring the treasures of Egypt. A tight relationship with the God who created you and loves you and wants to bless you for all eternity is worth far more than anything this world can offer. In 1946, Akio Morita, he started a communications business in a bombed-out storefront in Tokyo, Japan. Nine years later, in 1955, Mr. Morita's company came out with the world's first transistor radio. Immediately, Bulaba. An American company wanted to sign a deal to sell the radios for Merida. But they wanted to sell them under the name Bulova. And this bothered Mr. Merida. He turned down the offer. And he used the radios to establish a brand name for his own company. It was a tough decision. He said no to much needed capital. Mr. Merida explained his decision to the executives at Bulova. He said, I am now taking the first step for the next 50 years of my company. You see, like Moses, he decided to forego immediate gratification for long-term reward. And it worked out pretty good for Moses and Mr. Merida. Shortly before he turned down the deal with Bulova, Merida changed the name of his company to Sony. He made a pretty good decision. And you will too by esteeming your relationship with Jesus as more important than anything this world might have to offer. Notice verse 28. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You remember God told on the eve of their exodus from Egypt, God told Moses to kill a lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost of every Hebrew home. The blood was protection from the coming plague. And this is now true of Jesus. This is why in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says that Jesus is our Passover. By faith, we sprinkle His blood on the doorposts of our heart. And death now passes over our lives because of the blood of Jesus. He says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned with their backs to the water and their faces toward the attacking Egyptian army. Moses had nowhere to go but up. And yet that's where he went. He had faith in God. And God worked a miracle. The sea parted right before them. And do note the charitable recounting of this story. Notice the writer of Hebrews says, 
By faith, Israel passed through the Red Sea. Oh, really? By faith, Israel passed through the Red Sea? You ever watch the Ten Commandments? Well, it actually correlates with the Bible. At the time, no one expressed much faith. The Hebrews were mourning their demise. They were rebuking Moses for bringing them out of Egypt to die there by the Red Sea. I'm not sure anyone that day had much faith. And yet, you see, this is the tenor of the whole chapter. Noah was a man of faith, but he also got drunk. Abraham lapsed from faith to fear and lied twice. When the promise of a child was first given to Sarah, she belly laughed. That's why he was named Isaac. It means laughter. It took a while for her faith to warm up, and on it goes. God commends his people for their faith while refusing to remember or recall their lapses. That's how God rolls. He's merciful and he's gracious. And he rewards us by faith. This is the wonder of salvation by faith. Chapter 10 told us the just shall live by faith. It's our faith, not our works, that make us right with God. It's faith that allows God to forgive us to the point of forgetting and then treat us as if we'd never sinned. It's called justified. Now, at this point in chapter, he begins to sort of scroll through the history by noting examples in rapid-fire succession of men and women who please God through faith. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. This may have been the greatest example of collective faith in all the Old Testament. Israel's army trusted the strange battle instructions that God had given to General Joshua. They circled the walls seven times. And on the seventh time of the seventh day, they blew their trumpets. And the city's walls collapsed. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with faith or with peace. Understand, a prostitute's biggest customers were the traveling salesmen that came through town on business. And Rahab was continually being told by these strangers of a nation not too far off in the wilderness that had been delivered from Egypt and had been preserved by the power of God and was now headed in Jericho's direction. Well, when they arrived and she had opportunity to give shelter to the spies, she was ready to cooperate. Rahab was a harlot, but she was no fool. She was sure that Israel's God was the true God. And because of her faith, as ill-informed and as underdeveloped as I'm sure it was, she threw in her lot with the Israelites. And because of her faith, she reaped the rewards of their victory. Rahab was a woman, she was a Gentile, and she was a prostitute. And that combination placed her on the lowest rung of Jewish society. And yet God received her by faith. You never know where faith might turn up. It can even save the likes of a Rahab. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah 
Also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's an obvious reference to somebody we've been studying lately, to Daniel. We spent the last five Sunday mornings on the faith of Daniel. The ladies' Bible study has studied Gideon for seven weeks now. And yet here they're both barely mentioned. The point being that everybody who is anybody who has ever been somebody for God got that way by faith. It's the only way you get there. If you want to be somebody for God, it's by faith. Verse 34, faith even quenched the violence of fire. An obvious reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Men of faith escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again by faith. That last statement refers to Elijah and Elisha. The stories that occurred in their life and ministry. And notice, in, again, in all these rapid-fire examples, faith is never passive. It's active. All the people mentioned here are action figures. They acted on what they believe. Real faith always acts on what it believes. By faith, battles are won and kingdoms are conquered. Faith isn't lethargic. Even when it waits, it's always reaching and stretching and doing something for God. And faith not only accomplishes, faith also endures. Verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Even when they could have gotten out of it by recanting their faith, they didn't. They endured, even to the point of death. Recall verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Here, people literally died and gave up their lives because they believed that this world was not their home. They had their eyes elsewhere. We're told still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. You remember Jeremiah was chained and he was thrown into a pit of sludge. They were stoned, the plight of the prophet Zechariah. They were sawn in two. There's a non-biblical book. It's a Jewish uh, extra-biblical book called The Ascension of Isaiah. And in it, we're told that the false prophets of King Manasseh actually took Isaiah while he was still alive, and they had him sawn in two. Isaiah was the first person diagnosed with a split personality. Just kidding. Uh, the book, the book, The Ascension of Isaiah, says that as they cut the prophet's body, and I quote, he neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spake with the Holy Spirit. He endured by faith. Others were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world 
was not worthy. These people of faith were citizens of heaven. These men and women were on loan to this wicked world as a witness to the things of God. And yet they were never appreciated. Not by this world. In fact, if you want to be a person of faith, please don't expect to be popular in this world. You'll never be appreciated. We're told they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. You see, here's the common denominator with everyone in this Hebrew hall of faith. They exhibited great faith without ever receiving the fulfillment of the promise. They had great faith that accomplished much, that endured much. But they received little in turn in respect to earthly compensation. Their hope was largely unrealized. They were given a foretaste, but no one cashed in fully. In other words, everyone on this list had to wait for the fulfillment of the promise. And the reason they had to wait is amazing. And it should send goosebumps up and down your spine. Verse 40 will blow you away. For God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Wow. The Old Testament saints, they were content with the promise that a Savior would come and He would write God's law on the tablet of our hearts, that He would pardon us fully and freely. And yet all of them, they waited They waited for that promise. They waited for Jesus. While they waited, they studied God's law on stone tablets. And they offered animal sacrifices as a stopgap measure to cover their sin. Oh, they believed in something better. But they still labored under the old covenant. And and why was God making them wait? On us. The new covenant was not just for Israel, but it was for all men. It was for even you and me and the rest of the Gentiles. The nation Israel had to wait until God was ready to bring all men into His covenant. And today these blessings are free for the taking. Today we enjoy a portion of God's pardon and presence and power, but some of God's promises won't be completely fulfilled until we reach heaven. That's why faith always has to endure. And thus concludes Hebrews chapter 11. What a wonderful chapter. 